Luke 8 is the text that we want to look at this morning, beginning with verse 4. Most of you know by now I uh, grew up, at least in part, in a little farm just outside of Duncanville, Texas. And uh, there were certain small fields on that farm that my father used to sow by hand. I used to hitch up a mule or one of our horses to a plow and he'd break the soil and uh, then a little bit later, uh, he he bought a Fordson tractor. I don't know if any of you can remember those things, but it had uh, metal wheels and big metal lugs on it, and it, it didn't have a starter or a uh, battery. It had a magneto, so you had to crank it. So if it didn't break your arm, it would start, and uh, sometimes it would start, sometimes it wouldn't, and if it wouldn't, he'd just hitch up the mule and he'd plow the ground, and then he had one of these canvas contraptions that he'd put around his waist that looks like a, a kangaroo's pouch, and he'd fill it full of seed, and he would go out to broadcast the seed. That's actually where that term comes from. Broadcast means to cast abroad the seed. And he'd walk up and down the furrows, slinging seed everywhere. I mean, it would go all over the place. It would go into the furrows and into the uh, fence rows and uh, in the irrigation ditch and on rocks and in weeds and all over me and all over him. He'd just be covered with it by the time he would he would come in. Well, it's that picture that our Lord has in mind in this uh, parable. I want to read it to you first, and then I want to make some observations about the parable, and then I want to uh, make some applications uh, to us. Uh, verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and the people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. Farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell upon, uh, fell, fell among thorns which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When his disciples asked what this parable meant, he said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, Though hearing, they may not understand. Now, there, 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 there's a lot of local color in this parable. And unless you've seen uh, this uh, kind of sowing, which actually has been going on for millennia, the way, the way my father sowed was the way people sowed in Jesus' time and, and long before his time. There are a number of elements, a number of components in this uh, parable that you need to be aware of. There's a farmer or a sower. Uh, there's seed, which he sows everywhere. There's soil, and there's a crop. And uh, in one case, there is an extraordinary crop. Uh, ten, tenfold is the normal yield. This is a hundredfold yield, so it, it's an inordinate uh, yield. Uh, then there's some other elements in the parable. There's a path that's been trodden down by foot traffic. Uh, there is a weed patch. Uh, there are rocks. He seems to be referring to a shallow layer of soil with a, a layer of hard pan or hard rock underneath. And uh, there are other elements in, in the parable, but those are, those are the primary ones. 
And uh, Jesus told this uh, parable to this large crowd that had gathered, and then he, <laughs> he shouted out loud as though to underscore uh, the point of the parable. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, he's obviously not talking about the, our physical ears because anyone within range of his voice could have heard what he said. He was talking about the ears of the heart. <clears throat> Now, let me make a number of observations about this uh, parable, because I think it's important that we understand uh, what's going on here. First, uh, I simply want to draw your attention to the fact that this is a parable. Uh, a parable is a short story with a double meaning. Uh, Jesus loved parables. He told a, lot of, told a lot of them. And as a matter of fact, Mark and Matthew both uh, point out that, that in almost every discourse of Jesus, if not in all, he included parables, great uh, teaching device. Now, a parable talks about ordinary things. In this case, uh, farmers and sowing and seed and birds and things that we all know about. In other cases, he talked about fishing and sweeping and digging in the ground and, and various other ordinary uh, functions within life. But underneath the symbols, something more profound lies. And the point of the parable is to make us think. A parable, as uh, Winnie the Pooh would say, is a puzzlement. Makes you makes you think, makes you wonder. And if we have the right kind of heart, we will puzzle out what it means. See, that's why Jesus told parables. He would throw the story out there without much preamble and without any interpretation, and then he would withdraw and wait to see what people would do. Now, that's the first thing I want you to notice that this is. A figure of speech, uh, it's a parable, it's what we would call uh, an extended metaphor or an allegory or something like that today. Second thing I want you to notice is the particular place or time in Jesus' career when he told this parable. Now, when Jesus first started to teach, he was enormously successful. Uh, there were huge crowds that came from all over to, to gather around him and listen to him. <laughs> Listen to him teach, and, and they, they were wrapped in their in their attention. But as Jesus progressed further into his ministry, people became disenchanted with his lifestyle and uh, with his words. Uh, they would say, "Ooh, these are hard sayings. We can't, we can't, we can't handle this." And even though the crowds remained almost up to the end, most of them were indifferent. Now, that's interesting. Here were crowds all around Jesus who really didn't want to hear what he had to say. They were attracted to him for various reasons, but they weren't really listening. They didn't, they didn't have ears uh, to hear. Now, Carolyn and I very often uh, come in contact with pastoral couples who are very discouraged because they feel that they failed. Uh, they come out of seminary or Bible college, uh, and they were given the tacit understanding that... Uh, Wherever they went, people would love to hear what they had to say, and everybody would uh, listen to them, and, and they would respond to the word. And then they get into a church situation, and they discover out of maybe 50 people in their congregation, that's about the size of the average congregation here in Idaho, maybe four or five or six are really serious about their commitment to Christ, and they want to quit. They feel that they failed. And, and I, we love to share this parable with them, because one of the reasons Jesus told this parable to his apostles, to his disciples, was to help them to become utterly realistic about ministry. They had 
unrealistic expectations. And the Lord was trying to disabuse her mind of this uh, wrong thinking. Uh, and what Jesus is saying is that, uh, through, uh, that, that there are certain circumstances beyond our control that make it possible for us to predict that at any one time, very few people will be interested, seriously interested in, in the things of God. I think of this small group as the believing remnant or the hardcore of faith in any group. It's true in any church I've ever been in, regardless of how large it is. Most people are there, as Chris put it last week, just flirting with Jesus. But in the midst of that larger group, there is a small, hardcore of faith who really mean business. I often uh, diagram this for pastors as a series of concentric circles. There's the larger group that represents the mass of people that come to hear what, what they have to say. And within that circle, you can draw a couple of other circles, one to represent the disciples, and then the inner core, which in Jesus' case, numbered 11 out of the hundreds who came to, to hear him teach. Now, one of the reasons he told this story is to help all of us become utterly realistic about the measure of our, uh, of our, of our ministry. The third thing I want you to note is that there are two groups of people here. We'll see that as we move on into the parable. There are those that are described as his disciples, or sometimes he refers to them as you. And then there are others, those on the outside. Those on the inside get the mysteries. I I read uh, in verse 10, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables. Jesus divides these uh, large crowds into two categories. There are his disciples... Those that have a heart for the truth, and then there's everybody else. And the larger group, the others, is represented by those that really don't have ears to hear. They don't want to hear the truth, you see. So uh, he wants us to see that, that these two groups exist. And he makes it very clear that it's this smaller group of people who really long for God and for his word, who get in on the secrets of God. Uh, the NIV says secrets. It's the word mysteries, if you have a New American Standard Bible or, a, or an authorized version. Uh, the New Testament writers often borrowed the vocabulary of the secular world around them. And this is case in point. The mysteries were the these esoteric secrets that belonged uh, uh, within the secret societies. So they had secret societies just as we do today. And uh, if you were initiated into the secret society, then you learned the sacred handshake and and uh, all the, the signs and, and uh, keywords and codes and all the rest of it. You were on the inside. Those were the mysteries. And the apostles and Jesus borrowed that term to refer to the, those things that God wants to tell us his sacred secrets, the wonderful things he wants us to know about life and reality. But he says that it's just a small group who get in on the secrets. Everybody else, he says, uh, is outside. Now, the fourth thing that I want you to note is that Jesus not only interpreted the parable for the, for, for the disciples, for this small group that he designates as his disciples, but he also tells them why he spoke in parables. Again, verse 10, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, and here he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. 
Now, taking at face value here, what our Lord is saying is that he resorted to parables in order to obscure the truth. But we know that's not true. What is going on? You see, when he quotes Isaiah, who said basically the same thing, that there are some people uh, for whom God is not obvious. His word is not clear. They, they, they listen to the word and they, and they go away confused and empty. Well, what's going on here? And then Jesus says specifically that he told these, these cryptic parables that were so difficult to understand and did not interpret them because there were certain people that he did not want to see the truth. Well, how interesting. How ungodlike. Here's one who has this desperate need to communicate, who himself became the Word so that we could see what God is like. And yet he obscures the truth. Why would he, why would he do that? Why would he, would he go to, to such lengths? Well, if you dig far enough into the character of God, you discover that there's a cryptic side to God. He loves to hide things. There's a proverb that says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Now, a good case in point is the incarnation. God hid his own life in a human body. Now, if that isn't a parable, I don't know what is. Here's an ordinary human being, very much a man, no question about his manhood, and yet the life of God was resident in this man. He was God. But Isaiah tells us he didn't look like God. As a matter of fact, he says there was no beauty that we should desire him. He was a very ordinary-looking person when he walked down the straight street. He didn't shimmer and shine and float six inches off the ground. He was very much a man, but he was God. And it was people who took the time to get to know him and who began to love him who said of him, we saw his glory, and the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Everybody else, he was an ordinary man. But there was a small group who saw who he really was. Now, see, that's the cryptic nature of God. He loves to hide the truth so that people will search for it because he knows the inclination of the heart. It's those who really want to know God and want to know his word who will receive the secrets of God. It's just the way he is. You see, it is... It is not a good thing to give truth to people who don't want it. In the first place, it trivializes the truth. In the second place, it brutalizes people who traffic in it. There's nothing worse than trafficking in unliving, in unlived truth. Having a measure of truth and then ignoring it or spurning it. And God will not permit that to happen. He loves us too much because he knows it. It, it destroys our humanness. It, 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 it ruins our lives. It brutalizes us. It makes us less human and, and more inhumane. And so he will not give truth to people that don't want it. See? So the question is, do you want it? Do you want to know the Word? Do you want to know what God has to say? Do you want to be wise in the ways of God? Then you have to want it. See? You have to search for it. Now, that's the principle that lies behind this parable. He reveals this to the disciples, and we see it here in in Luke's account. And then he moves on to interpret for the disciples what the the parable means. Now, let's ponder the parable. parable, uh, Verse 11, this is the meaning of the parable. As Matthew tells us uh, in our Lord's interpretation of this parable, he actually interprets all parables. He gives us the key for understanding it. And what he does, really, is turn it into an allegory. He takes almost every element in the parable and makes it mean something. Well, that's suggestive. 
when we look at the other parables, perhaps we can do the same thing. But uh, let's look at his uh, his interpretation of this uh, of this story. Seed, he says, and I'm reading verse 11. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. Now you will uh, note that word "hear" occurring a number of times in the parable because that's the key word here. He said at the end of the parable, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he talks about four classes of soil, four classes of people. And the measure to which they give themselves to hear is the measure that they receive. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the words from their heart. Those are the foraging birds that snatch away the the seed so that they cannot believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. You see, this is a shallow layer of soil. This is a symbol. Shallow layer of soil overlaying a solid rock so that the roots begin to go down into the soil and they encounter this uh, level of resistance deep down underneath the soil. They look good for a while. They spring up, but then uh, they, they wither when the sun comes because the, the, the roots are not down into the soil far enough. And as, as any farmer knows, if there's a layer of rock under the soil, the sun also heats the rock, and the, the, uh, what's sown in that field can, can disappear almost overnight. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the, joy, uh, receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while. But in the time of testing, they fall away. They fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear. Here's our word again. But as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart. I remember the uh, proverb that I read earlier. It's the glory of God to hide a thing. It's the glory of kings. To discover it, there's a certain nobility about a heart that goes after the the truth, no matter uh, the cost. The seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. All right, let's try to understand the uh, components of the parable here. The seed, he says, is the word of God. Uh, A seed is a, is a, a good metaphor. For the word, because life is inherent in the seed. Seed is a life-giving germ. There's life in it. Stick it in the soil, go off and leave it, water it a little bit, nurture it, fertilize it, up comes the plant. You don't have to do anything to make it grow. There's life in it, you see. Uh, In Mark's uh, treatment of the parables, he adds another uh, uh, parable to this, the one that Jesus told which really contains that idea. He says that the seed grows by itself. He uses the word from which our English word automatic comes from. It grows automatically. You know, you sow the, the seed in the ground and the farmer goes to bed at night and he gets up in the morning, goes out, looks at nothing. You know, he goes back to bed and gets up the next morning and looks. Pretty soon, plants start to grow and then they reach maturity and then he puts in the, the uh, scythe and he, and he harvests the wheat. It grows by itself. You don't tamper with it. You just let it do its work because there's life in it. When First Garden, Carolyn and I ever planted, our kids who were real small at the time, we'd go out and pull all the little carrots up to look at them and see how they're doing, you know. 
kill them all. You, know, you can't do that. You got to leave them in the ground, and let them grow. That's what he see. This the idea of seed uh, is a very helpful metaphor because it's exactly what the word is, like a seed. And we go through life sowing it wherever we go. It lands on the heart, and there's life in it. If it doesn't grow, it's because there's something wrong with the heart. You know, sometimes we think there's something wrong with the gospel. It's impotent, but that's not true. It's a problem with the heart. The heart's hard, then the seed will will never grow. I'm getting ahead of myself. Then the Lord moves into the soils. There are four kinds of soil, which represent four kinds of people. All four kinds receive the word. Notice again, they all hear. They hear something. The the issue is what they do with what they what they hear. Now the first uh, kind of soil is is hard. It's a it's a path that's been trodden by hundreds of feet and it's been trampled down. And the seed strikes the soil and it just it, it lays it lays on the surface. It doesn't penetrate at all. So the birds come by and they snatch it away. And there's not even a memory of having heard it. Now we all know people like that. There may be people out here that are like that, whose hearts are impenetrable and hard. You know, a friend of mine used to say their hearts are as cold and hard as a tiled bathroom floor at 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, they, they, There's just no opportunity for the seed to, to penetrate. I've mentioned before this old fellow out in the desert that I talked to years ago. I had an opportunity to share my faith with him, and he sort of chuckled when I got through, and he said, well... He said, I've done without God for 85 years of my life. I can do without him for the rest of my life. Say, well, seed was sown, but it just, just bounced right off. Now, that's a sad state to be in. Now, I don't think it's necessarily permanent. God sometimes runs his plow through that, through that heart, through heartache, through perhaps a marriage breaking up or health beginning to decline, or in some way he brings, he softens that heart. That's what he's in the business of. Of doing, but nevertheless, at, at any point in time, we're going to find people, and there, there are people out here this morning that are just like that. The word lands, and you, you might as well sow it on this floor, in terms of any any yield. It, it, it's just not going to produce fruit. Period. And they walk out the door, and they forget what they've heard, because the birds snatch it away. That's one kind of soil. Now, the second kind of soil here represents those who hear the word. And make an initial response, but soon fall away because they have no root. See, their, their response to the word is superficial and short-lived because there's a hard layer of resistance to Jesus' authority underneath. Now, these are the people, who, and, and again, yeah, there's people like that out here. And we've all met people like that. They make an initial response to the gospel. Perhaps you share the four laws with them and they pray the prayer. And they endure for a while. And then they, they leave the faith. They go away. You say, well, uh, did they lose their salvation? No. They, they never had any salvation to lose because there was never any real commitment to the Lordship of Christ. And I believe that Scripture teaches us clearly that the Lordship of Christ is an element in our salvation. Paul says in Romans 10 that we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if we do so, and we are regenerated. Now, I don't believe we know all the implications of that lordship when we first made that commitment. I had no idea what it meant when I first asked Jesus to be Lord. It's almost like signing a blank contract and he begins to fill it in. 
you know, one, one issue at a time. And you look at that and you say, you know, I really don't want to do that. However, I have signed on, so I will submit to your lordship. He, the test of whether or not we belong to him is whether or not we have signed on. Are we willing to do what he has called us to do? We may struggle, we may resist him for a time, but if we are truly regenerated, we will do what he has asked us to do. Now, you and I have had friends who have made some sort of commitment to Christ, and they, they make some progress for a while, and then sooner or later they hit some hard, some issue that they will not, they will not put away. Perhaps it's pornography, maybe it's some other sexual thing, maybe it's the pursuit of money. I mean, they, you know, they stand before God, in essence, and say, I want to make money. That's what matters to me. And they go no further. And there's no growth. There's no yield. And eventually they, they, they walk away uh, from our Lord. That's the second uh, sort of uh, soil. The third soil, and I've got my outline all in. Hang on here a minute. Anybody have page four? <laughs> I don't know where it is. I'll just make it up. Okay, the uh, the fourth the fourth type of soil here, he says, a seed that fell among the thorns, which stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Uh, these are the people who who have soft hearts initially; they respond to the truth, but they. They become preoccupied with things after a while. Now, I, you know, we have here at Cole have talked a number of times about this whole concept of what we mean by things. There are the things of God, the things that have to do with His Word, with the pursuit of God, and then there are the things that we pursue here on earth. Uh, money, power, uh, 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 you know, all, all of the things that we think satisfy and give us what we're looking for in, in this life. And the problem with things, apart from the things of God, is that they wean our hearts away from Him. They become a major preoccupation. As a matter of fact, the word that's used here for cares is a word that means to divide. It, it, it has to do with a distraction. It's not that things in themselves are wrong. It's just that they distract us from the things of God. You see, uh, John says we cannot love the world and love God at the same time. We'll love one and hate the other. And if our, if our hearts are focused on acquiring things and possessing things, then after a while, things themselves will assume so much importance in our life that we will forego the things of God. That's, that's a real and genuine danger for all of us. Now, as you look at Jesus, oh, excuse me, then there's the fourth uh, soil, which he describes here as moist, good, fertile soil. The seed falls into the soil, and it begins to produce fruit. And as the other uh, gospel writers indicate, varying uh, yields, 30, 60, 100-fold. And the fruit here is the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness, as James puts it, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness. That's the yield, the extent to which we are becoming more and more like our Lord. Now, Jesus encountered all four types of soil. 
uh, there were the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees. I mean, there were some notable exceptions, like Nicodemus. But, but most of the Pharisees were very hard-hearted. And they continued to be so. And these were the, these were the clergy, by and large. And these were the people that believed in the authority of, of the Scriptures. But, uh, as Jesus put it, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life, and you will not come to me that you may, may have eternal life. They, for them, the study of the Word... Was the, was the end of all things rather than the means to the end of knowing God. And their hearts were hard. They, they didn't want to listen to Jesus. These were the people later, uh, you know, when Stephen was delivering his message in the book of Acts. Luke says, he actually says this in describing the Pharisees, that they stuck their fingers in their ears and shouted. It reminded, you know, you remember when we were kids and somebody would be tell, our parents would be telling us something we'd want to hear? Or somebody else would, we'd stick our fingers in our ears and hum. That's what he's talking about. See, they were so hard that they absolutely would not listen to what, what the Lord had to say. <clears throat> the second uh, uh, type of, of soil were the people that, uh, as Chris said last week, flirted with Jesus, who were there because of what he could do for him. They could be healed. Uh, there were various concerns that they had that Jesus would meet. But there was a hard level of resistance underneath. And then there were those like the rich young ruler who correspond to the third level of, uh, of soil or the, the third type of soil with that hard layer of resistance underneath. And finally, there were those that, that followed Jesus. And you have some notable examples right here in the text in the uh, context that precedes in verses that one, 1 through 3 of chapter 8. People like Joanna and uh, Mary Magdalene and Susanna and a few others in the twelve. That see, this is this hardcore faith, the believing remnant, the people that wanted God with all of their heart. They had open, responsive uh, hearts. Now I want to, you know, I want to say something about the soils here. <clears throat> Time is just about gone, but we need to. Uh, we need to understand what Jesus is saying to us because all of the types of soil are represented here. First thing we need to do is be good listeners. Uh, teachers talk about attending. You know, good students attend. That is, they pay attention. And that's where we have to start. That is to listen to what God has to say. And then secondly, we need to listen with a particular mindset that is with, with simplicity and with humility and with reverence. T.S. Eliot has a little poem. It says, you're, you're here, that is when you come to read the word, you're here to verify, you're, you're not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform curiosity, or carry a report. You're here to kneel. Well, whether that's a physical posture or an attitude of heart, that, that's the way we approach the word. We're not there to put, to, to judge it. We're here to let the judge, let the word judge our hearts. And then thirdly, we need to obey it. The biblical theory of knowledge is that we know as we obey. Uh, acquiring knowledge is not a mental issue, it's a moral issue. It has nothing to do with intellect. Very often you, you run across people who are very simple and perhaps not highly intelligent or highly educated, but they have a very profound outlook on life because they've been obedient to the truth that they have. The measure we give is the measure we get. If you want to know more of God, then begin to obey. See? 
That's the way to know more. It's not a matter of stuffing our minds full of knowledge and and reading books on theology and acquiring a greater grasp of, of, of what God has said or developing some sort of theological framework that we can hang all of our ideas upon. As useful as that may, as that may be, that's not the issue. If you want to know God on a profound level, you need to obey what he tells you to do. Okay? We need to practice what we read. I don't have time to read it, but the, the last part of the passage is a story about Jesus' mother and, and his brothers coming to, to visit him, and they, they couldn't get in the room because it was too, uh, there was too big a crowd, or they, they couldn't get to him because there was too big a crowd. And when he was told that his mother and brothers were out there, he swept his hand over the, over the disciples, and he said, These are my brothers and, and sisters, all those that listen to the word and practice it. See, that's what it takes to be a member of the family of, of Jesus. He wasn't trivializing his family or saying he didn't love them. He was saying, These, this is the way you become a member of the family, and that, that is to do it. So you see, that's how we grow. That's how the seed begins to exert its life-giving qualities on as we read it respectfully, humbly, worshipfully, and we submit to it. And he asks us to do things. He asks us to, uh, to carry our, um, our cross daily. We say, all right, I'll do that. He asks us to show hospitality without without grudging, without complaining. Well, <laughs> it's hard to do, but by your grace, I'll do that. He asks us to endure situations that we can't get out of, to see the places in which we're located as, as the place where God has put us, and, and to say, all right, I'll be content there. To be content, see, with, with, with such things as we have, as Paul said. To be content with our homes. To be content with our cars, to be content with our clothes, to be content with our body, to be content with our face. You see, it, it's a preoccupation with other things that, things other than the things that God has given to us that, that lead us away from, from the Word. It's the courage to take that first step, what, whatever it, whatever it is. You see, it, it's, it's reading the Word and then saying, by your grace, I will do this. Now, we won't always get it right. We'll fail, but there's always forgiveness and there's always grace to renew our efforts and to move out in obedience. So do you want to know God? Do you want to know his word? Do you want to know his will? Then take the word and begin to read it reverently. Open your heart to what he has to say to you and move toward obedience in those areas where he's speaking to your heart and there's no end to the yield that you'll produce. There's a little poem that, um, actually it's a song that Scott Wesley Brown wrote some years ago. And I'm going to ask Bill, where are you, Bill, and Susie to sing that song for you. It's, sim- it's called Simply Things. You know, as I look back over uh, the this parable and our Lord's explanation of it, I have discovered in my own life the thing that, that frustrates uh, the God's efforts to plant the word deeply in my own heart is just that preoccupation with the things around me. Our Lord said, it's the cares of this world, it's the deceitfulness of riches, it's the desire for other things that crowds out the word and, and makes it, it unfruitful. And the, and the answer is not to tear yourself away from things, because you can't. The appeal is too great. 
and the media play on our desire to have things in, in, in another place in the Gospels where this parable is referred to. Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of riches. Money, money talks, as we say, but it lies to us. It tells us that you can be secure. You can be serene. You can have it all. You can have power if you have money. But that's the biggest lie we've ever been told. And, and, but, but these things get a grip on us. And the only way we can get free is to give ourselves wholly to the Lord. Jesus said you can't love God and mammon. You can't. If you love mammon, you'll lose your love for God. If you love God, you'll begin to lose your love for things. Lord, I um, think of the words of that chorus, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That would be our prayer, Lord, that we would... uh, Cease to be enamored <clears throat> by the things that uh, attract us away from you and that we would, our hearts would be full of reverence for you, that we would worship you in spirit and truth, that we would listen to what you have to say and we would respond in obedience. We pray that we would be among those who have ears to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.